Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It's July 28th, 2021. Today, we are focusing on the Israeli intelligence firm NSO Group, which sells military-grade surveillance tools to authoritarian regimes around the world. A new investigation revealed a list of more than 50,000 phone numbers that had been targeted by NSO's spyware tools and included human rights advocates, journalists, and world leaders. I'm delighted to be joined today by expert analysts Youssef Munayar and Dalia Scheinlin. Youssef is a non-resident fellow at the Arab Center of Washington, D.C., and Dalia is a political strategist and public opinion expert. She is also a policy fellow at the Century Foundation. Both Yusuf and Dalia just published articles on the NSO group. Yusuf has a new piece in Jewish Currents entitled Exporting the Tools of Apartheid. Dalia's piece in The Guardian is called Why Israel is More Concerned About Ben and Jerry's Than the Pegasus Revelations. Yusuf and Dalia, thank you for joining Occupied Thoughts today. Um, so Yusuf, I just want to start with you. Some people may, uh, there are a lot of people who now, now, now may have NSO and Pegasus kind of you know, swirling around in their heads a little bit, but I think a lot of people still don't necessarily entirely understand what these entities are and what the, the significance of these revelations that all these journalistic entities broke um, over the last week or two. So maybe you can just give people a little bit of an overview about what these entities are and, and what's significant about this story. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, uh, Peter, for having me here to talk about this. So um, the NSO group is essentially a Israeli uh, high-tech corporation uh, that sells its, its sort of its premier product is uh, spyware. Uh, and it is one of several uh, Israeli high-tech corporations that are involved in the uh, sale internationally of uh, basically this uh, this kind of technology uh, their premier product pegasus uh, which is the one that has been um, you know at the center of the uh, news that has come out about them uh, in recent weeks is essentially a form of technology that allows users this is sold to states primarily um, to uh, spy on an individual's phone uh, and in some cases uh, do that uh, without uh, having the user click on any link. Uh, once the spyware is on your phone, uh, they have access to you know, uh, conversations, files, uh, images, and, and can operate reportedly your, your camera and your microphone uh, as well. Um, so this is um, obviously very dangerous technology. Uh, it is technology that um, uh, is used for repressive purposes. Uh, and, um, you know, it is technology that is licensed for sale uh, by the Israeli Ministry of uh, Defense. Uh, and now uh, this corporation, NSO Group, uh, like so much of the Israeli high-tech industry, uh, has very close relationships with the uh, Israeli military uh, intelligence uh, apparatus. Um, and uh, many of the uh, founders uh, and staff of uh, this group, as well as many of the other organizations uh, and, and corporations that are selling Israeli technology internationally, um, have close relationships with the Israeli military, came through the Israeli military intelligence unit, and continue to have uh, close ties uh, with uh, the uh, Israeli military. We've known this for some time. Uh, this is not what is new. 
what's new and what's driving much of the reporting that we've seen in recent weeks uh, is that there has been a leak of a very significant list of about 50,000 phone numbers that were reportedly potential targets uh, of uh, Pegasus users. Um, and this is uh, something that was analyzed by uh, Amnesty International as well as others uh, to uh, find out who was on this list, who was being targeted. Um, and uh, in the course of doing an analysis uh, on this, they found that um, some 50% nearly of the phone numbers that they uh, were able to investigate from this list had traces of the Pegasus spyware on them. Um, people who uh, were impacted by this included something like 14 heads of state, uh, as well as uh, people like Jamal Khashoggi's uh, wife and later his fiance, um, and other targets of um, transnational repression. Uh, which uh, is becoming a you know, major uh, human rights issue as regimes are able to extend their reach beyond their borders to target dissidents in ways that was not possible before. Um, and just, just a factual question, is, as far as we know, are these sold only to states or is this technology also sent, sold to non-state actors? You know, it's it's a good question. As far as I know, it's only state actors. But you know, there's I I wouldn't be surprised if there are certain individuals that have close relationships with some of these regimes. You have to understand that some of some of these regimes are monarchical regimes, right? Um, right. Where you have you know family members uh, that you know are very high up within right. the uh, system that may not necessarily be. Uh, part of the government or operating it as part of the military intelligence. For example, you know, uh, the um, uh, princess uh, from uh, the UAE, uh, Princess Latifa, who had escaped uh, from the uh, UAE, was uh, brought back, um, you know, while she was in the middle of the ocean escaping by Indian commandos. Uh, after she had this uh, spyware uh, on her phone used to sort of uh, to, to track her down. And it's, you know, not really clear if that was, you know, the government or, you know, individuals within the family who are linked to the government. And I, I think, you know, it, it, it should go without saying that, um, you know, this is a pretty secretive world uh, of, um, uh, of, of work. And we have, um, you know, glimpses into what is going on, but, uh, it's hard to get a complete picture. Dalia, I wanted to, to turn to you. What do you, what do you think is most significant about, about this story and, and what we've learned about the, about, um, about NSO and the way it operates? I would agree with Yosef that in many ways we vaguely knew of this reality for a number of years in Israel. I mean, the basic principle that Israel is constantly developing weapons um, and you know, tools, military tools that it's using in a sort of ongoing conflict situation, whether it's the occupation of the Palestinians, control over the West Bank and effective control over Gaza or other you know, parts of the region where Israel has interests in spying or, you know, generally, uh, you know, using its military capacity, we know that this is providing what has been called the lab for Israel's military exports. And since 2007, there's been a law to, uh, for the government to supervise and regulate the sale of these kinds of weapons and cyber 
surveillance of this type now counts as uh, something that should be controlled as a military as military exports. Um, the Ministry of Defense is supposed to approve all of these kinds of sales. And uh, just to add to the question about are they sold to governments or not, the Israeli government claims and the company claims that they are only sold to governments. But I think that is that that really speaks to what Yusuf was talking about. That it's a very shadowy world that you know emerges. I mean, the technology itself emerges from some of the most secretive units in the Israeli army. So we know that we will never really know the full ins and outs of it. And I think that what's significant about it in some senses is that Israeli society has known about this general trend, uh, this general way that things happen, the way the, you know, uh, the, that these instruments are, are developed, the situations in which they're developed through the military establishment and then move into the private sector from the people, the same people who leave the army and go into the private sector afterwards and become major part of Israel's military exports, which is of course a major part of Israel's exports overall. And Israelis are basically okay with that. To my mind, the striking thing has been how little debate this has raised in Israel. We can certainly talk about it more, but you know, in the first few days that the story broke, Israeli society certainly wasn't talking about it very much. And I think that the reaction of government officials was, was, was notably muted. They gave these kind of you know, lackadaisical statements or sort of, you know, anodyne statements that we will look into this and we will, you know, certainly check to make sure that the sales uh, to the, the sales are being used by the purchasers in ways that we were intend that they were intended. But it's all kind of, um, I would say, almost hinting that everybody knows that we don't really know or we haven't tried to keep very close control or if the highest levels of government do know that they are downplaying it, basically. And that has been, I think, the outstanding feature because this has been such an enormous story that has really rocked the world and you know, set off diplomatic crises. Um, and in Israel, it's simply not seen that way. It's just one of those you know, background headlines. Uh, and I think the government officials who have waited in are basically trying to keep it that way for the most part. Hmm. So, so that contrast that, has been very striking. Sorry, the contrast. Right. The contrast. I just want to just to follow up on this about, about this kind of nonchalant kind of attitude. I mean, it seems to me these are these are decisions that NSO is making that have implications for Israeli foreign policy. I mean, it seems to me if the NSO is then, you know, helping people spy on the uh, you know, president of France, um, that could have an impact on French-Israeli relations. Um, so I'm, I'm curious a little bit to ask why you think the Israeli government isn't more concerned about this. Is that just because they are generally quite happy to be uh, having their companies spying on large numbers of, of, of people around the world. They think it benefits them or they don't think there's going to be any blowback. I mean, help me to understand that. Well, I think we're all trying to understand it. But when we talk about the Israeli government, I think we have to distinguish between the current government, which has only been in power for about six weeks, and the previous government, which was led by a prime minister who effectively conducted Israel's foreign policy, even when there was a separate foreign minister. And the foreign ministry officials are involved in the committees that basically work with the defense ministry to make their recommendations and give these approvals that we're talking about. But ultimately, at the highest levels of government know about this, and there's a lot of speculation that the prime minister himself would have had to know about this kind of thing. And he was essentially the one who determined and executed Israel's foreign policy, sometimes in very counterintuitive ways. You know, nobody can forget uh, Netanyahu's willingness to challenge the American president. Um, and, you know, there were the same questions then. Wouldn't that bother Israelis or wouldn't that bother the government that the uh, prime minister is being so confrontational with its closest ally? And I think this falls into the same category. Netanyahu 
had an attitude that he could manage foreign relations, he could take risks, he did the calculations, and he would manage the blowback. The current government is now in a position of dealing with this. I don't want to let them off the hook, of course. You know, a number of the officials in the current government, including the prime minister at present, served as defense minister in the past. But I, I you know, if I have to kind of give a, a, a zoom out analytic perspective, Netanyahu generated a situation in which he took all control and in a way took all responsibility for that kind of thing. And now the new government has to decide if that's going to be, if these are significant costs that they no longer want to incur. Having said that, I doubt it, to be honest. I mean, these are very lucrative industries and, you know, Israel tends not to place human rights at the center of its foreign policy, to say the least. Um, it's generally more committed to pushing back, you know, on criticism of human rights for its own record. So I don't think they're going to let the fundamental issues that this has raised significantly constrain the decisions that it makes in the future. Uh, Youssef, you wanted to jump yeah, in? I just, I just want to jump in on this point and, and add a little bit to it because, Peter, there's, there's a flip side to this when it comes to um, Israel's uh, foreign policy uh, as well. Uh, and the flip side is that its uh, weapon sales and its military intelligence sales have often been sort of the foundational pieces in building and extending foreign relations with new governments, including some of the most unsavory regimes that Israel has relationships with. And, you know, I would say that while in, in the, the recent era, um, particularly when it comes to some of this advanced uh, spyware technology, um, it really has been the Netanyahu government just because of sort of the, the timeline that this took place in. Um, but uh, this, you know, dynamic uh, of, um, you know, uh, trading and building relationships with regimes, including, uh, you know, some very dangerous regimes uh, with uh, technology that is, um, you know, uh, banned or, or restricted or um, what have you, uh, is, is really a deep part of Israeli history that transcends governments. I mean, one, one can, can look at the, you know, long and prolific career of Shimon Peres himself uh, in building relationships with uh, governments uh, in Africa and elsewhere, including with the apartheid regime in South Africa through the trade of, um, you know, weapons and technology uh, that was off limits to them otherwise. Um, so this is, this is sort of a way of doing business uh, that has now evolved into uh, the, the 21st century. Right, right. Um, uh, and Dali, among Israel, in Israeli society, is there, in, in terms of its nonchalance, is that just, um, is it just that, because people think, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nasty, dangerous world out there, Israel, you know, should do, can do whatever it wants if it's in the name of its own security, or is it more, is it more because people recognize the economic value of this? There are no... There aren't any, I mean, there was a time at least when Israelis, some Israelis would wanted to just differentiate themselves from other regimes for their for their their democratic or supposed democratic credentials. Are there not voices in Israel saying, you know, this is beyond the pale? There some of these governments we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be supporting. We shouldn't I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that you may be overestimating the extent to which Israeli society is thinking about this story at all. Mm -hmm. uh, we should remember that on the, you know, the day that it broke was last Sunday. Um, and on, I believe it was on Tuesday or, or, or Monday evening, Tuesday morning, that the Ben and Jerry story broke and it completely swept the headlines, totally took over public, public attention. And, you know, the NSO was quite drowned out by that. And there's a good reason for that, which is that 
I guess, you know, the media and the editors who make these decisions didn't think it was nearly as important for Israelis. So that's one thing. It simply was drowned out by the far more symbolic issue of the potential boycott, which was actually divestment and also not really even happening until another year and a half from now of the Ben and Jerry's story. Uh, and, you know, and that is much, you know, plays much more deeply into the Israeli symbolic narrative of how they look around the world. So if you're asking what Israelis care about in terms of their image, uh, the Ben and Jerry's story hit home much, you know, much, much more deeply. They're much more concerned that how dare the world look at us as the aggressors and want to punish us for that. The typical narrative that we hear all the time that Israel isn't communicating its, its, its position properly and it's being misunderstood around the world. That is such a familiar story in Israel that it's almost like Israeli society just fell into the pattern of focusing on that track and not really thinking about what it means that Israel is contributing, you know, this kind of uh, instruments to governments that are either authoritarian in themselves or have authoritarian practices or illiberal governments. You know, I thought it was that that simple. That was the story that it got drowned out and, you know, into the bigger issue, the Ben and Jerry's issue took over. But I've heard some commentators go even further, and I don't entirely disagree that to some extent Israelis may be um, a little bit proud. I mean, they are certainly proud of the industry. And when I say the industry, Israelis aren't thinking about the arms export industry, which I agree with Yusuf again. I think that you, we should be looking at this. Um, we are increasingly looking at cyber surveillance as simply part of military exports. But Israelis are looking at this as a great high-tech success, and they have nothing but pride for their high-tech industry. Again, not to give Netanyahu credit for everything, but his stump speech, pretty much at every opportunity he got to speak about Israel's achievements involved the success of Israel's high-tech sector, especially for exports and especially for contributing wonderful innovations around the world in which he would often talk about cybersecurity. So by that, he, he was referring to a kind of technology that is considered defensive security. Now I think we're all learning to distinguish between defensive uh, and offensive cyber instruments, uh, cyber you know, uh, um, technology. Uh, Israelis have barely gotten them, their heads inside of that because they're too busy thinking about how great Israel's high-tech industry is. They also are highly aware that it is a booming industry, especially in the shadow of the corona crisis. There have been, there's been lots of media recently about how these, you know, the high-tech industry is hiring, needs more people, uh, is offering high salaries. People can do quick trainings. You know, there are promises that their salaries are going to double if they do quick training. And so Israelis see it as their lifeline domestically, as well as, you know, major driver of the economy that, that shielded Israel from the worst of the damage from the COVID economic crisis due to exports. And I think that they don't put this in the, in the category of weapons export uh, or, you know, uh, supporting undemocratic regimes and how Israel looks. They put this in the category as basically a slightly less than perfect part of Israel's stunning, successful high-tech industry. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, in the U.S. too, obviously, the, the whole startup nation storyline has been this way for, you know, Israel supporters to essentially try to kind of turn the conversation away from those uncomfortable political and moral issues and say, no, 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 there's just this exciting economic success story. And maybe it even it's great for the world because Israel creates technologies. Right. But in fact, one sees here very clearly that the two things can't be disentangled, right? That is, um, um, you said, did, you, did I see you wanted to jump in? Yeah, yeah I just want two, two things on sort of the, the, the Ben and Jerry story coming at the same time of this, which I think is, is important. Uh, you know, Daya points out 
uh, how it sort of overtook uh, mm -hmm. the uh, conversation. And that's, uh, I think, in large part because the Israeli government officials wanted to shift the conversation. Mm -hmm. And you can see that they were issuing statements and issuing tweets about the Ben and Jerry's issue um, and not speaking mm -hmm. at much at all about the NSO issue. They wanted that to go away and they wanted the conversation to be about Ben and Jerry's. Not that, that that's not an important topic, uh, but it, it certainly was convenient for them to shift the story here. At the same time, you know, the one of the, the issues that they spoke about in relation to the Ben and Jerry's decision was linked to this, I think, in, a, in an important way that says something about, um, you know, Israeli society and the values which uh, are, um, you know, uh, acceptable when it comes to these issues. Um, and if you look, for example, at the, the foreign minister, uh, what he said in, in response to one of the things that he said in response to the Ben and Jerry's issue is um, there are all of these laws uh, in the United States that are against BDS and we are going to work to push the governors to uh, enforce these laws against activists and so on. Um, and of course, these uh, are laws that uh, officials in the Israeli government, including former ministers, uh, have taken credit for helping to to uh, to to pass. This is itself a form of transnational repression uh, in a a you know a different medium, uh, where through networks and pressure, uh, the Israeli government is hoping to see repressive outcomes. Um, and in in this way, it's something that is totally accepted. Um, so I think, you know, there is a sense that this stuff is okay, this is acceptable. Um, and I, I don't think Dalia is wrong about there being a sense of, of, of pride uh, in this uh, as well. Mm -hmm. yes. I just want to add something, right. you know, Peter, back to your question when you asked about, does Israel care about distinguishing itself from the non-democratic regimes? In the past, it has wanted to portray itself as more democratic. I think we have to be you know, really clear about what we mean by that. Israel has tried to portray itself as the only democratic country in the Middle East. And mm. what it means is for its own citizens. It has never really uh, taken on or tried to engage in what it means to set an example of democracy in the international community. And the idea, by the way, selling weapons, you know, back in the pre-cyber era to, you know, very uh, violent regimes is not new for Israel. I mean, Israel's been implicated and you know, it's very well publicized about selling weapons, weapon sales to South Africa under the apartheid regime. Uh, lots of credible accusations um, and evidence of selling weapons to Rwanda during the, just before the genocide and even export uh, to the former Yugoslavia during the wars in Bosnia. Um, and those kinds of things, you know, and Israel, by the way, has also made common cause and alliances with repressive regimes, even if it wasn't directly based on arms sales going way back. Israel had relations with Ceausescu. Israel had relations with Idi Amin before, uh, you know, before that that relationship changed. So I think it's always been a, a very real politic sense of whoever will be friends with Israel is good enough for us. We don't really care what kind of regime they are. Netanyahu, I think, accelerated that policy significantly in his attempt to deflect precisely the kinds of criticisms of Israel's human rights record and, you know, uh, erosion of democracy from Western countries, from Europe and from the US, especially under the Obama era, I think he was concerned about that. That's my reading of it, given how much he accelerated his cultivating of you know, many of these very unsavory regimes. I mean, I remember when he went to Azerbaijan for the first time in 2016, and we all, you know, I argued at the time 
that he was not only trying to forge new partnerships, but that it served his interests to legitimize illiberal regimes for his own kind of leadership. I'm not saying he was exactly where the Azerbaijani regime is, that would be an overstatement, but you know, legitimize, it's not just about having one more friend, it's also about saying these are legitimate partners. Their style of governance is legitimate for us to do business with them. At the same time, we've also pointed out that those new friendships were largely based on the promise of arms sales to Azerbaijan at the time, also cultivating relationships with India to the point where by 2017, uh, India was the number one purchaser of Israeli arms. It may, it's no longer in the number one position, but you know, this is a fundamental part of those relationships and it has not bothered Israel, to be frank. So I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned the anti-BDS laws. So um, I think one of the, is, you know, there has been certainly, there, there's been lots of talk over the years about the way in which Israeli government may be spying on um, people who are involved in the boycott of and sanctions movement, people involved in the Palestinian solidarity world in the United States and other parts of the world. I wonder if if you've seen any ways in which this, this NSO Pegasus story intersects with that and if there is any evidence that we have yet about if any of this spying might actually have been on um, on 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 people who are protesting Israeli policies well one thing we know for sure is that there are corporations uh, for example like black cube which is um, you know one that that is uh, you know apparently former uh, Mossad people uh, that are sort of um, spies for hire type uh, of um, of services uh, that have targeted um, BDS activists. That's something that we that that has been reported. Um, and at the same time, again, there's a lot we are not going to know about because these are state secrets. But look, if a government is licensing the sale of technology outside the country, you can pretty mm -hmm. safely assume that not only does it have that technology, but also it's had that technology for a long time and probably has something even greater at its disposal. That's just mm -hmm. the way that uh, that it tends to work. Um, and you know, the Israeli government has made you know no secret about having a in, a vast interagency approach um, that brings together all of the tools of the state to respond to BDS activism around the world. So I think it's only a logical inference to assume that that um, that that is happening. Hmm. Um, and I just wanted to say something about this, you know, sort of question about, um, you know, is is it surprising that Israel is sort of embedding itself among all of these authoritarian regimes? Hmm. It's not surprising to Palestinians, hmm. certainly not. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're talking about a country that has been running a military occupation for. Uh, you know, more than half a century, uh, over millions of people who have no right to, to vote. Uh, this is an authoritarian regime and repression has been a key instrument uh, inside the occupied territories, but also against Palestinian citizens of Israel historically, right? Um, and for Palestinians who have long understood that their society, that their networks um, have been heavily so surveilled uh, and infiltrated, None of this was particularly surprising. I think the surprise was what what's taken so long for people to realize that this is a problem. Right. right. I think in that vein, it's worth reminding listeners who may not be familiar with the fact that from the beginning, from the end of the War of Independence, Israel did implement a martial regime, a military government over Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, in, in large uh, population centers up until December 1966. That means that 
there's only ever been six months roughly in Israel's history when it was not implementing some kind of heavily surveil surveillance-based regime. Right, right. And I think, right, I mean, part of the, I think that the problem here is that we have a discourse in the United States, you know, which which tends to think, talk in, in kind of Manichaean terms between, you know, the supposed the kind of de democratic world, which often just means us and our friends, you know. Um, um, and so I think if this story had turned, if it had, if it had been China that had produced the NSO group, right? I mean, you would have seen every hawkish senator and congressman literally basically saying, this proves that there are, you know, there are an existential threat to the United States, right? And, um, uh, and we should, um, uh, and, and yet, in some ways, this this story, which is which shows that this techno authoritarianism or whatever actually has multiple centers around the world, including, frankly, the United States, um, uh, and doesn't necessarily respect these Cold War lines that we you know that we've drawn. I think means that it doesn't have the same effect politically in the United States because we just classify these countries in different baskets, largely based on whether they're they're our friends or not. Um, what's, what's so interesting thinking. about that, Peter, is that it's actually it's actually Israel's unique position as mm. part of you know this sort of Western mm. uh, family of like-minded nations mm. um, that has you know given it the opportunity to exploit this market, right? Mm -hmm. uh, American and Western allies are probably not going to be buying Chinese or Russian surveillance technology. Mm -hmm. right? They're going to be buying it from people they can quote unquote trust, right? Right. Um, and so the Israelis are sort of sitting at this unique intersection uh, of, you know, being a, uh, a high tech economy, uh, of um, having a population in which they could uh, practice and refine surveillance technology uh, in ways that other quote unquote democracies would not be able to do because mm -hmm. of you know civil liberties restrictions uh, and and a, a set of relationships establish relationships with western powers that allow them to compete very effectively against the chinese and the russians in spaces that they don't have access to right right okay. uh, I, I would add just, to that and just go yeah, a little further I'll give you the last saying, word you know, yeah, oh, sorry, no, just on this theme of you know what other countries do. I mean, Israel has also been cultivating China as a major trade partner, of course. And you know, it was the Trump regime, the Trump, the Trump government, I should say, I guess, uh, that warned Israel and tried to pressure Israel to reduce the exports uh, and limit China's investments, and specifically asked it to try to limit China's involvement in the technology uh, sector in Israel, uh, warning Israel that this could backfire because the China Chinese would have access and possibly cause some sort of a security threat because they would have the technology to access Israeli, you know, Israeli secrets. Uh, so there's an irony there too. Right. Um, terrific. This was this was really great. Um, uh, thank you so much, Dal and Yusef, for our conversation. Uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project of the Middle, a Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website at fmvp.org to subscribe to our many resources and find today's podcast episode posted along with links for additional resources about this topic. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. I'm Peter Beinart. I look forward to our next episode. Thanks very much.